Amen. Children, you are dismissed for Children's Church. Everyone else, let's go ahead and take our Bibles. And as I mentioned earlier, let's open them to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9 this morning, we're going to be picking up in verse 20 as we make our way through the end of the ninth chapter of the book of Daniel. Now, I hope that you have enjoyed our study through the book of Daniel. I can tell you from my standpoint, it has been a lot of fun to study the word week in and week out. It has been a lot of study. These sermons do not come easily. There's a lot of time, effort, and energy that is gone into each and every one of especially these prophecies trying to work through the details and figure out exactly what they mean or at least to the best of our understanding what they mean and so Daniel chapter 9 is another one of those chapters that is quite difficult to fully comprehend all the details now the good thing is that almost all of these prophecies the overarching theme or the overarching point has been clear and that'll be the same this morning the point and the truth of this text is clear, the timing of the text and some of the details are going to be a little bit more difficult to figure out, and we're going to work our way through it. We're going to do it slowly. We're going to do it methodically. Uh, You're going to notice I'm going to be sticking much closer to my notes than I normally would. A lot of less time on the wings this morning, a lot more time back behind the pulpit as I tried not to get confused myself, because at the end of the message, I have a feeling that we're going to have a little bit of clarity, and we're going to have a little bit of confusion. Confusion, but hopefully I won't be confused because if I get confused, then we're in a lot of trouble. Amen. Matter of fact, if I get confused, I'm just going to call a timeout and we're going to pick up next week. We'll figure that out as we go. But let's uh, go ahead and jump into the text this morning. Now, if you look at the scripture, you will notice in verse 20 that Gabriel is going to bring an answer to Daniel's prayer that he prayed last week. So let's just kind of back up and let's remember what we saw last week. In the first 19 verses of chapter 9, Daniel comes before the Lord because Daniel has been in the Word of God himself. He's been studying, he's been reading, and he has figured out that according to Jeremiah, the captivity that God had promised would come to Israel would last for 70 years. This is 67, almost 68 years past that time. And now Daniel is putting the timeline together and he's realizing that captivity would soon be coming to an end. Also remember that 70 years by God's counting doesn't mean exactly 70 years. It's a rough estimate. So 68, 69, 70 all fit within the time frame of what Jeremiah prophesied from the Lord back in Jeremiah. And so Daniel is coming before before the Lord and here's what Daniel does he comes before the Lord and he says oh God if it would be your will I pray on behalf of me and this nation that your uh, punishment your judgment the captivity would come to an end sooner rather than later amen and we join with Daniel. We, we go through times of difficulty, times of persecution, times of troubles. And we pray, Lord, help the end to come sooner rather than later, right? We don't, we don't fault Daniel for that. We do exactly that in our own prayer life. And that is what Daniel has done. He's come before the Lord. Remember, he's come before the Lord having been informed and inspired by the word of God so that his prayer is in keeping with God's word. Amen. That's important. He comes with the proper perspective and proper posture. He is humbled before the Lord while he is in awe of who the Lord is. He comes before the Lord honestly confessing his sin and his people's sin. He doesn't try to rationalize or justify their sin. He is crystal clear. We have sinned and we have knowingly sinned against you. We've been wicked. We've rebelled. God, your judgment is on us. It's our fault. It is well deserved. Amen. Listen, that's an honest confession of sin. We, we learn from that as we saw last week. And then notice, as we saw last week, his prayer is that God would answer this prayer in a way that would bring God honor and glory. Remember, Daniel is clear to say, God, your city bears your name. Your people bear your name. Your temple bear your name. We are the laughing stock of all the world, and we bear your holy name. So for the sake of your holy name, Daniel says... We are asking, I am asking on behalf of our people that you would rescue us from this captivity. And so this morning, we're going to jump into verse 20 and we're going to see 
the answer that God brings to Daniel while he is actually praying. And so in the text, we're going to see, or excuse me, here God is going to reveal to Daniel his plan for the salvation of his children. And in the text this morning, we're going to see two truths concerning God's plan for the salvation of his children. So if you will, let's read together Daniel chapter 9. <coughs> excuse me, I'm still recovering from that cold. Daniel chapter 9, picking up in verse 20. I'm going to get some water. Hold on. All right. Daniel chapter 9, verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, (coughs) excuse me, sorry, and presenting my plea before the Lord, my God, for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight At the time of the evening sacrifice, he made me understand, speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I have now come to you to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I've come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Let's pause there and let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning, and Lord, I want to begin by asking that you just touch my throat, you take this uh, this tickle away, and Lord, that you help me to be able to clearly articulate the truth of the text this morning without this distraction. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified this morning through the preaching of your word, that we would come away having a much clearer and better understanding of this text and of your ultimate and final plan for the salvation of your children. Lord, it's in your holy name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, in the text again, we're going to see two truths concerning God's plan for the salvation of his children. Number one, God hears and answers the prayers of his children. Let me say that again. God hears and answers the prayers of his children. Now, in verses 1 through 19, remember that Daniel has been praying. Daniel has been asking God to take away the reproach, the shame, and the captivity that he and his nation are enduring. And in verses 20 through 27, we get God's answer to this prayer. Now, what this passage is going to show us clearly in the beginning is that God both hears and answers the prayers of his children. Now, we know from experience that God hearing and answering our prayers does not mean that God will answer them according to our desires and our timing. Right? We also know that sometimes God answers to our prayers is much like a parent's answer to their child. Sometimes the answer is no. Because we oftentimes need a no. Right? Sometimes what we want is not God's best for our life. As a matter of fact, if we're honest, most of the time what we want, our ideas are not actually the best ideas. Right? It's just not. I I was talking to somebody this morning that said I had cheesecake for dinner last night, and I had it for breakfast this morning. Probably not a great idea. Amen? And so our ideas are sometimes not the best ideas. I also had cheesecake for dinner last night, not for breakfast this morning, but I will have some for later tonight as well. So our ideas might not be the best ideas. And so sometimes when we come before the Lord, God hears our prayers and he answers our prayers, but not in the way that we want him to answer our prayers. But what we will see (coughs) is that if you remember, Daniel last week was praying, having been inspired and informed by the scripture with humility and awe, honestly confessing his sin while seeking God's honor in response. In other words, Daniel's prayers were not missing God. I love it in the New Testament. It says that sometimes we pray and we pray amiss. What does that mean? Sometimes our prayers miss. Sometimes our prayers miss God's mark. They miss God's will. They miss God's desire. Sometimes that's because we're praying with sin in our lives. And sometimes that's because our prayers do not line up with God's will. But Daniel's prayer lined up with God's will. And I don't want you to miss why. The reason why is because he was informed and inspired by Scripture. Amen? As I said last week, if you want to enhance your prayer life, spend more time in the Word. Spend more time getting to know God's word, God's will, and who God is. And the more we know God, the more our prayers will line up with what God's will is for us and for, our, for his people. Amen? And that's exactly what Daniel has been doing. Now, 
<laughs> excuse me, I apologize. Notice how God responds to Daniel in verse 20. It says, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God. So notice this. He's confessing sin, he's praying for him, he's praying for Israel, and he's presenting his plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill. That's Jerusalem, the temple, that is Israel of my God. So again, notice Daniel is confessing sin and he's asking God to act because Israel, the holy hill, bears the name of God. He says, while I was speaking in verse 21 in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me swiftly. So God sends the angel Gabriel in human form. This is the same Gabriel that talked to Daniel back in chapter 8 in the midst of that vision to explain to Daniel what the vision of chapter 8 meant. And so here Daniel is talking to Gabriel. What I like here is notice what Daniel doesn't do this time when he sees Gabriel. What do you notice? He stays on his feet, right? He doesn't pass out. He doesn't fall to the ground as dead. Now, that doesn't mean Daniel's getting used to this. Listen, this was 12 years past the time of of chapter 8. So chapter 8, 12 years ago, this is chapter 9. What's even more impressive is that this is not a vision. This is happening in real life. This is happening in the flesh. Daniel is praying before the Lord. God sends out the angel Gabriel, not in an angelic form, but in a human form. That's why he describes him as the man Gabriel. But notice how Gabriel shows up. Gabriel's not walking down the street. He, he swiftly, it, it's, the, the text reads as if he flew to Daniel and appeared to him quickly. And here is Gabriel, and Gabriel says to Daniel, I'm here to answer the prayer. Now, the prayer is going to be fully answered in verses 24 through 27. But what I want you to notice is I want you to notice how Daniel says or how Gabriel explains to Daniel what's been going on in heaven while Daniel has been praying. Now, notice this is this is at the time of the evening sacrifice at the end of verse 21. Now, that's really really interesting and it gives us an insight into who Daniel is. Remember, sacrifices have not been happening for the last 48 years in the temple because the temple has been destroyed. Daniel personally has not made a sacrifice in over 60 years because Daniel at this point has been in captivity for 65 plus years. But yet Daniel is still keeping time according to Jewish law. It's amazing, amen? He hadn't forgotten his God. He hasn't stopped serving his God. When it comes time for the evening sacrifice, Daniel isn't going about his business. Daniel stops, and since he can't make a sacrifice, Daniel is in prayer before his God. That's awesome. Amen? That, that, it's incredible. It gives us hope for our brothers and sisters in Christ who around the world are living in countries where they are not able to freely worship the Lord Jesus Christ, but yet they find a way in spite of the circumstances around them. Amen? And they got great examples like Daniel to look to to see exactly how to do that. Well, notice what happens in verse 22. It says, He made me understand speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I've come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Now, Here's what's happening as Daniel is there in ashes and sackcloth, remember? As he is there in humility, as he is praying before the Lord, that's what's happening on earth. But here's what's happening in heaven. Gabriel says, as soon as you started praying, God heard your prayer. And not only did God hear your prayer, but God immediately sent out a decree. That's amazing. It gives me hope that when I pray, God hears my prayers. Amen? It gives me confidence that when he hears my prayer, he immediately sends out a decree. Sometimes that decree is yes. Sometimes that decree is wait. Sometimes that decree is no. But he answers our prayers. Amen? And here's what Gabriel says to Daniel. He is answering your prayer, notice, because you are greatly loved. He he helps Daniel understand, you are a child of God. God loves you. 
And that's why he hears your prayers. And that's why he is answering your prayer. Now, the reason he answers his prayer in a astounding yes, although it's not going to be exactly what Daniel was hoping for, by the way, but he's going to answer it yes is because Daniel was praying in line with Scripture. But he's heard and he's answered because God loves him. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, of course God loved Daniel. This is Daniel, right? This is the guy that went into the lion's den. This is the guy that interpreted the handwriting on the wall. This is friends with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is Daniel. I mean, like Daniel, right? He's in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, right? This is Daniel. Of course God loves Daniel, right? God loves Daniel. Guess what? God also loves Paul. We get it. God loves those who were incredibly faithful to him. But do not forget that God loves you and God loves me as much as he loved Daniel. Let me ask you a question. Who did Jesus die for? You. Me. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for you. Do not ever doubt God's love for you. Amen. Do not ever think that you're a second-class citizen to some of the heroes of the faith. We are all brothers and sisters in Christ. We are joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. We all call our Heavenly Father our Father because we are His children and He loves us. Amen? Daniel says, Gabriel says to Daniel, you are greatly loved. And so as soon as you started to pray, God heard your prayer. And before your prayer was over, God sent out a decree. And I'm here to explain to you what the decree means. Oop, I knocked that over. I'm here to tell you what the answer is and to give you the details as we flush this thing out together. So, remember, God hears and answers our prayers because he loves us. But also remember... That the more we pray like Daniel prayed, the more likely our prayers are going to be answered with a yes. What do I mean? I mean the more time we spend in the word so that our prayer is informed and inspired by the word. The more time we come before the Lord with absolute humility realizing that we are wicked rebellious sinners who need God's grace and mercy to come before him the more we come before him realizing that he is the one true holy God in complete awe of who he is, the more we come before him with honesty, confessing our sins, confessing our failures, and confessing what we are, where we are at in the moment. Here's one of my most favorite prayers that I pray. God, I don't like what's happening right now. I, I hate the prayer that when, when, when people pray, God, just here to say thank you so much that life's awful right now. So excited, so thankful for all the tribulation and the persecution that's coming my way. I'm so grateful to be sick. I'm so thankful that times are so difficult. You don't mean that. Amen? We don't mean that. That's not what we think. That's what we try to, we try to fool God to thinking we're more spiritual than we are. That's not who I am. That may be you, but I promise you that's not me. I love coming before the Lord in honesty saying, God, I don't like this. Like, God, what you have me going through right now? Not a fan. I would love for this to go away, like right now, by the way. Okay, maybe now? Okay, Lord, as soon as you're willing to let this thing pass, let it pass, amen? That's how Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so Daniel comes before the Lord with honesty, but then Daniel's not seeking his own personal blessing. Daniel is seeking God's honor in the response. The more we pray like that, the more likely we will hear a much more greater yes than when we pray amiss. Amen? But regardless, God hears and answers the prayers of his children. And then secondly, God will bring about the final salvation of his children. All right, here we go. Chapter 9, verse 24. This text is commonly referred to as the 70 weeks, or more accurately, the 77s, which we'll get into as we make our way through the text. Let's read it, and then we'll make our way through it together. Verse 24, Gabriel says to Daniel, Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. 
Verse 25, know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. <coughs> Verse 27. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Now, again, verses 24 through 27 are by far the most difficult verses in the book of Daniel. And many would argue that they're some of the most difficult verses in all of the Bible. The meaning of these verses is going to be clear by the time we get to the end of these verses. However, the timing of the verses is what makes these verses so difficult. So we're going to go through them together. And I'm going to lay out what I believe these verses are telling us concerning the time of these events, but like many commentators who write on these verses sort of humorously explain, I do not fully understand the timing of these events. I don't fully understand every detail of these events, and therefore I reserve the right to change my mind whenever I want to change my mind on this text. All right? Now, and I don't mean that humorously. I mean that sincerely. There are great men who love God, who were much, much, much smarter than me, who disagree on these verses and the meaning of these verses. And so I come before this text in humility saying, who am I that I might know more than those men and those women who are so much smarter than me, who love Jesus much more than I do. I come before this text in humility, and I'm going to present to you what I think to be the most reasonable explanation of the text, the most reasonable timing of the text. But if somebody comes to me at the end and says, have you thought about this? I may say, I haven't thought about that. I just changed my mind. Right? Make sense? All right, so let's work through these verses together, and let's begin in verse 24. Seventy weeks are declared about your people and your holy city. Now, first of all, let's notice a few things in verse 24 that are really going to help us as we make our way through this text. So first of all, notice the term that is translated as weeks in verse 24. That term literally means seven. It's a number, and it can be used to speak of any duration of time from days to weeks to months or to years. Now, we see in Scripture that that term is used to describe days of a week. So seven days would be one week, right? It's used to describe seven weeks, right? And it's also used to describe seven years. But the term translated as weeks is literally the term seven, and it can be used to speak of any designation of time. Most commentators agree, and I agree as well, that the context makes this seven speaking of years and not weeks. So that's confusing because our translation is translated as weeks. And so when you see this repetition of weeks, weeks, and weeks throughout this text, the word is literally sevens, sevens, and sevens. And what we're going to see is that years makes a lot more sense. And so what is spoken of then in verse 24 is 70 sevens, or 77-year periods of time, which would mean 70 times 7, which is 490 years. I know if you thought there was going to be math, you wouldn't have come to church this morning. I know. I get it. Right? So, so just kind of track that with me again. 70 sevens, those sevens are seven years, seven-year periods of times. So there's going to be 70 seven-year chunks of time that is going to work out to be 490 years in total. You excited yet? Right? Maybe we'll get to biology later, and we'll just go ahead and do all of school, all the things we didn't like growing up, right? Secondly, notice that the decree concerns Israel and Jerusalem. Notice what it says. For your people and your holy city. In other words, this word is meant for Israel. 
Now, that doesn't mean that we don't get something out of it. But Daniel is being answered, excuse me, God is answering Daniel's prayer concerning Israel because who was Daniel praying about? Israel. He's confessing the sins of he and his people. He's talking about his holy city that goes by God's holy name. And so the answer is for Israel. Now, the main question of the text for the interpretation of it is, does this prophecy speak about the time of Antiochus IV, as we saw in chapter 8, or does it speak of the Antichrist as we saw in chapter 7? Now just remember, approximately 12 years have passed from chapter 8 to chapter 9. All right, And also, as we go through the text, the timeline does not make sense for Antiochus IV as much as it does for the Antichrist. And then when you go and you read verses 24 and 27, which we're going to get to it. I'm, I don't, don't get confused. We're going to get to it. What we're going to see is that the meaning of those verses also does not fit well with the timing of Antiochus. It fits much better with what we see portrayed at the second coming of Christ when it comes to the timing of the Antichrist. Now, what's helpful here is the time of Antiochus the fourth has already passed. We can look back historically and we can see what happened there. And when we look back and we see what happened there, what we don't see is what is described in verses 24 and 27. But when we read in Scripture and we read the prophecies of what's going to happen during the second coming of Christ at that seven-year uh, tribulation that's going to come at the end, that is what we read of in verses 24 and 27. So, again, most likely this is speaking about the time that's going to take place uh, at the second coming of Christ during the time of the Antichrist. Now, there's several ways to then work out the timing of this 77s, with some taking them to be literal seven-year periods of time and others taking them to be symbolic references to time. The view that seems to be the most probable to me is the view that holds these as seven literal periods of time that will begin here as we work through the timeline. And what we're going to do is we're going to try to get a broad overview of what's being said. Then we're going to try to get into the details a little bit more. Again, if you get confused in the middle of this, don't sweat it. Don't, don't worry about it. I, I want to explain it as best I can. But if you get confused in the middle of this, join the club. We're all a little confused. It's okay, right? And then at the end, I'm going to bring it to a very clear conclusion. So even if you get lost in the middle and you're not a fan of math or numbers or dates, don't sweat it. Hang around. In the end, it'll be crystal clear. Sound good? All right, let's have some fun. All right, so look with me now in verse 25. In verse 25, we get sort of the beginning marker of time. Notice what it says. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem. All right, so that's our first time indicator. And what, what, what uh, Gabriel says to Daniel is when the word is decreed that you are to go and restore and rebuild Jerusalem, that's when the time is going to start. And historically, that date would either be the decree to Ezra in 458 B.C. or the decree to Nehemiah in 445 B.C. Both Ezra and Nehemiah were told to go back to Jerusalem and start the rebuilding process, right? Ezra was told in 458 B.C., Nehemiah told in 445 B.C., as you're going to see as I lay out the timeline in greater detail, I personally think it was the first decree to Ezra in 458 B.C., now, notice the timing is broken up into three different parts or three seven-year periods of time. Look with me back in the text. It says, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks or seven sevens. Then for 62 sevens it shall be uh, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. Then join with me down in verse 27. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one seven. All right, so now we have three periods of time that add up to be 70, which is what we were told in verse 24. You having fun yet? <laughs> right? We got seven, right? 62, all right? Seven plus 62 is 
69. All right, we got, we got uh, Ted likes numbers. He looks at them all day long. He, he jumped on that answer. I noticed my homeschool kids did not answer that at all, right? Neither did the homeschool kids in the back. We're all just like, oh, look at me. Tyler's really looking at the floor right now. It's perfect, right? Like, like my kids are like, it ain't a school day. It's Sunday. I'm not doing anything that has to do with math, right? So 7 plus 62 is 69 plus 1 is 70, right? So that's, that's the three parts. So we have one part that is comprised of seven seven-year periods. Seven times seven is 49. Then we have another part that is 62 sevens. Don't even try. I've done it for you. 62 times seven is 434. See, I'm not confident either. I, would, I did that with a calculator. All right, 434. All right, then one seven is seven. One times seven has always been seven. That's easy. Thank goodness, right? Add it all up, again, 490 years. But what we see is that the first two parts go together. There's a seven sevens, and then there's a 62 sevens. And then some time is going to pass, we're going to notice in the text, before the final seven-year period, which I'm going to make the argument is, for, uh, is, is waiting for uh, the, the second coming of Christ, the seven-year tribulation. So, the first two parts are going to go together. The last one is going to come after a period of time. So now let's get into the, the details of the timetable. I'm going to follow my notes so that we don't get confused. And here's how this would work out. And, and just pay, you don't have to write in this down. You don't have to, there's not going to be a quiz at the end of this, rest assured. But I want you to notice how detailed this is, but also how accurate it is. Like God gives us details here that are incredibly accurate that we can look back and say, hey, that happened, that happened, that happened. Therefore, that is going to happen, right? And so notice this as we kind of jump into the timetable. So in 458 B.C., Ezra, Ezra receives a decree to return and rebuild Jerusalem, which takes approximately seven sevens, or 49 years, to complete in 409 B.C. What we know from Ezra and Nehemiah and extra-biblical sources, 409 B.C. is in the time frame of when Jerusalem and the temple was rebuilt after Babylonian captivity. 434 years after that then, so the seven sevens have occurred, 49 years. Now the next 600, or excuse me, uh, 434 years is, is the time period we're in now. So in 434 years after the temple was rebuilt, the anointed one, who is Jesus, is anointed by the Holy Spirit at his baptism in A.D. 26. So when was Jesus anointed for his public ministry? That is baptism, Remember? He's baptized, he comes up out of the water, the heavens opened up, the Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove lighting on Jesus. The Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. That's when Jesus is anointed for his public ministry. So 434 years after 409 BC brings us to AD 26, which is in keeping with the timeline of when Jesus would have been baptized uh, and then anointed by the Holy Spirit. But notice, however, in verse 26, we see that after 62 sevens, or 434 years, the anointed one would be cut off and have nothing or be emptied. In other words, appear to have been defeated. This would be the death of Christ that would have occurred shortly after the 434-year period. Now again, I want you to look with me in verse 26 because there's a word there that's very helpful. And after... The 62 weeks. So the 62 sevens take us to the anointing of Jesus for his public ministry. What takes place in verse 26 is going to occur after that time frame. Shortly thereafter, yes, but it's going to occur after. So what we're going to notice then is there is a period of time, unmarked time, that occurs between verse 26 and and verse 27 that is not accounted for in the sevens or in the weeks that we see in the text. I'm going to make it clear once we get there, but I just wanted you to notice it at first. And so 
after the 62 sevens, notice that in verse 26, but before the final seven in verse 27, the people of the prince who is to come in verse 26. Now, now look with me. We're going to walk through this one together. All right, so 434 years, Jesus is anointed. He is anointed by the Holy Spirit. He begins his public ministry. After that, in verse 26, after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Jesus is crucified. It appears to all, including the disciples, that Jesus has died, that he is empty, that he has nothing, that he was not the true Messiah until three days later he rose from the dead. Amen? But in the text, the anointed one will be cut off and he will be emptied. Now, who, Gentile or Jew, who thought Jesus had been emptied and had been brought to nothing? Well, everybody at first, but after the resurrection, it was the Jews. Who began to follow Jesus and come to faith in Christ? The Gentiles, right? We see that clearly in the book of Acts, remember? In the book of Acts, the Jews are persecuting Jesus. They're persecuting the disciples. It is in Acts chapter 10 that the word begins to go to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles begin to hear and learn of who Jesus is. They begin to come to faith in Christ, and they begin to follow Jesus faithfully. And that is true even to this day, right? Jews are still rejecting Jesus. There are Jews that have come to faith in Christ, but by and large, the Jewish nation has rejected Christ as the Messiah, and this is the time of the Gentiles, where Gentiles are the ones who are coming to faith in Christ, right? Now, look with me back in verse 26. So after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off from Israel and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. So here's what takes place in verse 26. From the people are going to, from the people that will arise the prince. Now the prince in this verse we're going to see in verse 27 is the Antichrist. All right? So where is the Antichrist going to arise from? What nation? We learned this in chapter 7. Rome. Remember, there was four nations represented, right? You had Babylon, the Medo-Persian Empire, Greece, and then you had the fourth and most dreaded kingdom, which was Rome. Rome, we know, has kind of gone away, but Scripture tells us that Rome will come back in some way, shape, or form, and from Rome will come the Antichrist, all right? Who crucified Jesus, by the way? Rome, Okay, notice that then in the text, because I want to make sure this is as clear as it can be. As my pastor, you say, I want to make sure this is as clear as mud, okay? So, after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince, so the people of the Antichrist, who would be Rome, who is to come. Notice the, the prince, this prince has not come. He's the Antichrist. So the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and, the, uh, and, to, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. So what does Rome do to Israel after Jesus has died, has resurrected? What happens in AD 70? Rome comes in and they destroy Jerusalem, the temple, and all of the city. Right, And from that point on, Israel ceases to be a nation until 1948, right? So Israel is completely and totally destroyed through a flood of violence that will come from Rome, right? And we look back at history and we say, nailed it. That happened. Amen? That's exactly what happened. So far, everything we've seen that was going to happen, that was Daniel's future, but is our past, we can look at it and say, that has happened. However, verse 26 identified a prince who is to come. And the prince is going to be described in greater detail in verse 27. And so in verse 27, it says, And he shall make a strong covenant. This is the prince, the Antichrist. He shall make a strong covenant with many for one seven, the last seven-year period. And he shall, for half of the week... He shall put an end to sacrifice. So three and a half years, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So what do we read about in Revelation concerning the Antichrist? He's going to come. He's going to have 
a period of seven years. Three and a half years are going to be bad. Three and a half years are going to be really, really bad. And for three and a half years, he will stop worship. No one will be allowed to worship anyone or anything except for him. Until Jesus comes back and Jesus declares that he is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. And he is going to buy the power of his word, put an end to the, to the war and to the battle once and for all. The Antichrist and Satan will be defeated and thrown to the lake of fire where they will dwell for all of eternity. Amen? That's what's going to happen. And notice that described in verse 27. And where will the Antichrist come from? It's going to come from Rome. The same country that destroyed Jerusalem and the same country that crucified the anointed one. That's pretty accurate. Amen? Pretty amazing. Now, also a little confusing because what you notice in verses 26 and then in verse 27 is there is a period of time that is unaccounted for. Look at that again. After the 62 weeks in verse 26, these events are going to happen. Verse 27, then once the Antichrist has come, then time starts again according to this prophecy. He's going to make a strong covenant with many for one seven. So what does that mean? That means that the time in the prophecy stopped after the 62 sevens. And the time would not be picked up again until the last seven years of creation and history as we know it, which is going to precede the second coming of Christ, which will be the end of all things. Now, that period of time that is absent is 2,000 plus years and counting, right? Because we're living in the midst of that time right now. Now the question is, why? Like it went from being really accurate to now there's this huge question mark of why this massive gap of time? Well, who was the prophecy for? Israel. And we are living in the time of the Gentiles, right? So this, is, this prophecy that concerned Israel, notice that time stopped, or the clock stopped, if you will, once Israel rejected the Messiah in A.D. 26. Once they said, nope, we reject the Messiah, which led to the crucifixion of the Messiah, Israel's time stopped. And it was now time for the Gentiles. Well, what's Israel going to do after or before Christ returns during that seven-year tribulation? they're going to come back to Christ, right? Now, they're, they're going to come back to Christ. And so Israel's time will start again in, that, in that, last, that last week. Now, I know that this is a lot of information. I know that it potentially brought more confusion than clarity. So before we end, let's look at the conclusion of all of this, which is the main point that we can see clearly in the text. Okay, so if you, if you got lost, this is where I want you to come back. Everybody pay back attention, wake back up, and look with me now at verse 24. Because in verse 24, we see the point of the text that is what we want to focus on as we come to an end. Verse 24 kind of introduces us to the 70 weeks or 77s by telling us what they're going to accomplish. And then in verse 25, the details of that is given. But look back with me now at verse 24, and let's look at what the coming of the anointed one is going to accomplish. And tell me what this sounds like. 77s are decreed about your people and your holy city. Here's what they will accomplish. To finish the transgressions. To put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. So what will be accomplished by the coming of the anointed one? Transgressions will finish. Sin will end. Atonement, excuse me, iniquity will be atoned for. Everlasting righteousness will come. Visions and prophecy will cease and be sealed complete because they will have been fulfilled. Amen? And a most holy place will be anointed. What does that sound like? Sounds like what's going to happen with the second coming of Christ. Amen? How is this going to happen? Well, this is going to happen through the work of the anointed one, Jesus Christ. Listen to this. Jesus, through his death and resurrection and through the establishment of his eternal kingdom, at his second coming, will abolish transgression and sin once 
and for all. Once Jesus returns and defeats Satan and the Antichrist, then sin will be done with forever. All right, there will be no more sin. Sin will have be annoyed, um, annoyed, I can't say that word, annulled, there it is, I knew it would come, right? Sin and transgression will be done, all right? Then what will happen? All of our iniquity and guilt that has been atoned for on the cross will be fully realized in eternity. What does that mean? That means that all the sin that the blood of Jesus Christ has atoned for in my life, all the iniquity that I have that I still struggle with and wrestle with, I'll finally realize that it's gone. I long for that day, amen? I long to wake up and not have to guard my mind and my eyes, not have to be sober and vigilant because the adversary, the devil, is walking around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. I can't wait for the day that I can let my guard down because sin will be gone. Amen? And then what's going to happen? Notice what it says in the text. We will dwell with him in everlasting righteousness because he has made us righteous. That's good news. Amen. I will no longer be the scumbag that I am standing before you today. I will be righteous and you will be righteous. You say you're a scumbag. I think we all kind of are scumbags, aren't we? We're, We're all... We're all pretty wicked in our sin. We struggle. We're not good. There's none good. No, not one. We're all like filthy rags, right? And one day I will dwell with him for all of eternity with everlasting righteousness, right? But that's not all that's going to happen. All visions and prophecies will have been fulfilled. There's a day that we won't have to read this and study this any longer. You know why? It'll be complete. We won't, we won't need the word. We're going to dwell with the word. Amen? And all visions and prophecies will have, <coughs> excuse me, been fulfilled. And there is a day coming when God will bring about the final salvation of his children. And we will dwell with him for all of eternity in a most holy place. Let me say again, God will bring about the final salvation of his children. Amen? And that's the point of the text as a whole. We may not understand all the details. The timeline that I've presented is what I believe at this moment. I may change my mind next week, right? Because we, we, we don't know the details of all that, but that's okay. Because what we do know is that God will fulfill the final salvation of his children. Jesus is coming back, amen? And he's coming back to take us into his eternal kingdom where we will dwell with him for all of eternity in righteousness. And that's what matters. Now, the question is, how do we become the children of God? Well, we become his children by putting our faith and our trust in Jesus. How how do we do that? Well, we do exactly what Jesus told us to do. Remember, in the Gospel of Mark, as Jesus comes onto the scene, he comes declaring the good news, the gospel. And he says that the kingdom of God, that eternal kingdom, The kingdom of God is starting now. It's at hand, he says. And if you want to be a part of that eternal kingdom, he says you have to repent first of all. You repent of your sins, acknowledging that you are a sinner and that the only hope you have for forgiveness is if Jesus Christ forgives you for your sin because you cannot do anything to take your sin away on your own. There is not Gojo that gets sin off, right? Right, there, there is no soap, there is no dawn that will get the sin. You can't get the sin out of your life. You can't even stop sinning, much less get rid of sin. Amen? And so you repent of your sin. And you believe. He says, repent and believe in the gospel. You believe in who Jesus is. He is the Son of God. He is the promised Messiah. He did die on the cross, right? You believe in not only who he is, but what he did. He died on the cross as a payment for your sin and for my sin. He died to atone for our iniquity. That means he took our place. His blood was paid so that our sin could be forgiven. But he didn't stay dead. It might have looked like he was brought to nothing. But three days later, he rose from the dead. Amen? And he presented himself to his disciples. He presented himself to others, 500 brothers at once. Right? And he's alive and he's active right now in our hearts and in our lives. He's even here in our midst this morning. 
We believe in who he is. We believe in what he accomplished. But it's not enough to just believe. We commit to following him. What does Jesus say next in that text in verse 17? He says to the first disciples, come and follow me. You see, it's not enough that we just believe. The devil believes. The demons believe. They know. No one in Scripture makes a more accurate confession of who Jesus is than the demons he encounters. They're not his children. Why? Because they might know and believe, but they've not committed to follow Jesus. And that's what it takes to become his child. We repent, we believe, and we commit our lives to following Jesus. And if you have done that, then I've got good news for you. Your final salvation has been secured. It is going to happen. Amen? And in the meantime, you are his child. And guess what that means? That means he hears and he answers your prayers. That means he is your father and you can enter into his presence with boldness because you are his child whom he loves. Amen? That's going to make the rest of the day and tomorrow easier. Amen? But if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus, you've never repented, you've never fully believed, or maybe you've repented, you've believed, but you've never really understood what it means to follow Jesus. And maybe this morning you're hearing that, you're understanding that for the first time. And today might be the day that you want to commit your heart and life to following Jesus. Today might be the day that you want to become a child of God. Well, if that's you, then just a few moments we're going to stand to sing the hymn of invitation. And as we do, I'm going to invite you to come. Now, you've heard me coughing. I know you don't want to get within six feet of me. I get that. I understand that. And so what I'm going to ask you to do is just simply to come forward, get close, and just say, I, I want to talk with you after church about my salvation. Right? You can wait till after the service. And do it. That's fine. Right? But I'll be standing here. If you want me to pray with you, I'll pray with you. I'll keep a distance. But, but, but what I want you to do is understand that if you feel like God is speaking to your heart, know that that's not me talking. That's God speaking to you. And I want to encourage you to respond. Maybe it's right now. Maybe it's at this altar. Maybe it's after the service. But I want you to respond to what God is doing in your heart and in your life. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the work that you accomplished on the cross on our behalf. That you died for our sins. That our iniquity might be atoned for, paid for. That we might be able to dwell with you for all of eternity in everlasting righteousness and a most holy place as your children because of what Christ has done for us. Lord, if there's anyone here who does not know you as Lord and Savior, Lord, I pray that you would call them unto yourself. And Lord, that as you call them, they might respond. Lord, I pray for us as believers that we would walk with confidence knowing that you are coming back. That we would walk with confidence knowing that you hear and answer our prayers and that we might bring you glory in our lives because of it. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for all that you're doing. We surrender ourselves to you now. It's in your holy name that we pray. Amen.